Daniel chapter 12, beginning at verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of those wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall... Rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing upon our time this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would teach us from your word. That you would teach us who you are. That you would teach us who you require, what you require of us and that you would teach us more and more to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, it's one of those favorite phrases that children like to hear from their parents. You know what it is. You're getting set to go out to the park to play ball, and those magical words that come from your parents, just a minute. Or you're about set to have dinner and you're starving and you hear that from the cook. Just a minute. Just wait a minute. Or perhaps you're waiting to open Christmas presents or birthday presents. And you hear that voice from the other room. Just a minute. I'm not ready yet. Wait. Well, of course, I'm being facetious because this is the last thing that any child likes to hear. It gets them so antsy in their seats that sometimes they can't sit. Come on, let's go, hurry up. I can't wait any longer. Or perhaps for adults, it's experienced in that wonderful thing called the waiting room. Is there anything worse than that? Perhaps the only thing that's worse than the waiting room in the doctor's office is getting a test done and them saying to you, well, we should have that back to you in about uh, two weeks. Oh, I have to wait two weeks to find out if there's something wrong with me? I have to wait? But if we think about it, much of the Christian life is waiting. 
waiting for the redemption that is ours to be consummated. Waiting to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Waiting to see our children grow in grace. Waiting to see them get married. Waiting to see what will come in the next year or five years or ten years. But one of the things that's critically important and that is focused here at the end of Daniel, you know Daniel, that book of prophecies that talks about the future and has all of these grand visions, Daniel is going to lay out for us how we are to live in the waiting time. That waiting time is purposeful. And God, the God of the universe, the God of the nations, the God of history and prophecy is also the God of the waiting time. And so what I would like us to see this morning are three things, three directives from our Lord. First, He tells us in this waiting time to be patient. To be patient. He speaks to us like a loving Father. Be patient. All will be resolved. I will come. Be patient. But then secondly, he tells us that we should use our waiting time profitably. He tells us not only to be patient and wait, but to be wise. We should seek wisdom. We should be wise. And the third thing that he tells us to do is to live expectant life. Live expectant lives in this waiting time. And he tells us to be faithful. So to be patient to be wise, and to be, patient, and to be faithful. Let's begin then by looking at patience. What does it mean to be patient? The first thing that we need to remember is, is that we need to be patient through trials. All of us know about trials of one sort or another. You can imagine something in your mind right now. But God tells us to be patient through trials. You see, the end of this book of Daniel, with its numbering of days, and how long, O Lord, is set in a context. It is the final scene of this book. And the focus of the immediate context is Daniel chapter 11 that we looked at two weeks ago. It is a focus upon strife, struggle. It is a focus upon persecution of the people of God as the kings of the north and the south trample over the people of God, and as especially the king of the north, this future Antichrist, persecutes and harms the church. But if we think about it, this entire book of Daniel is really all about struggle and trial. Isn't it? As Daniel struggles to be faithful when those around him want him to be faithless as those struggle against God and His sovereignty, as the people of God struggle with their place in the world and struggle with where God is leading them. That really describes the book of Daniel. And so, as we look at this final section, we don't want to take this section out of its broader context. In the same way that we don't want to take our own struggles and trials out of context as we go through a rough patch in our marriage, as we face illness, we need to look at the struggles and the things that the Lord has given to us in the context of our entire life. In the context of what God is doing from beginning to end. 
This is something that teaches us to be patient through trials. And so what happens here is the scene opens up. There is this vision, this man in the linen cloth. that We've looked at this before in, in Daniel chapter 10. This is either one of two things. It is either the Lord Jesus himself in a pre-incarnate manifestation. Theological term for that is a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ. Or it is an angel appearing as a direct messenger from the Lord. In either event, it is a man, it is an angel, it is a being with authority. It is one that Daniel knows has the answers. And beside him, on either side of the stream, are two men, two angels. And they know that this man has authority as well. For they look at him on either side of the stream. The picture in your mind should be this large river. It's probably the Tigris. This is not a little brook. This is a big river with an angel on either side and the man clothed in linen up on high. And they look to him and they ask. And they say, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? They ask, how long? We want to know. Now, there's something we need to learn from this. It's not just Daniel that has questions. Angels do as well. I'm reminded of that passage in 1 Peter when the angels desired to look into the things of Jesus Christ before He came. That might even be referring to exactly what is happening here. The angels are peering and saying, when will the end be? When will you manifest your kingdom, O Lord? When will you redeem your creation? And you see, we need to realize that we are not the only ones who are unaware and who desire to know what the Lord has in store for us. The angels do as well. And there is a sense of immediacy here. They say, how long shall it be till the end? What's happening right now, how long will this end? What is the this? Well, it's the troubles that the people of God have. It's the persecution they've been experiencing. It's the difficulties that come throughout all of history. And this is the cry of God's people from all time. It's what Isaiah says after that great vision in Isaiah 6. In verse 11, after this wondrous vision, he looks and he says, How long, O Lord? You see, it's almost as if if the veil is pulled away and we see the majesty and power of God, we long even more for the end and the manifestation. It also happens when God's people struggle. Like the psalmist writes in Psalm 90, How long, O Lord, will this happen? And the saints in Revelation, How long, O Lord, until judgment? You see, the people of God long to see God resolve all of their struggles and their strife. And you see the answer here from God through the angel is that we need to be patient. The one thing that he doesn't do is give a definitive answer. He doesn't say a week from next Tuesday. He doesn't say in the 1,951st year after Jesus Christ. You see, he says a vague term, a time, two times, and a half a time. We'll look a little bit more at that in a minute, but 
It's not something that allows us to easily put an end here. And this, again, we can imagine this in our own families. When will we be leaving to go on vacation? Well, soon enough, when we're ready. Ooh, I wish you would have said 5 o'clock, 7 o'clock, so I knew we were ready. But you see, God doesn't do that. He tells us to be patient, to be patient through the trials, but also to be patient through that very uncertainty. You see, this is an uncertainty for the people of God. I think part of the reason as we've looked through the book of Daniel that so many people look at Daniel as a mysterious jigsaw puzzle to give us answers about dates and people is because they don't like living with uncertainty. They have to know all the answers. They're not able to leave them with God. But you see, that's not what God gives to us as an option. He tells us there is uncertainty. And He does it in a very solemn way. It's almost... It's almost the exact opposite of what we would expect. The angel, the being who gives this answer of how long, this vague answer, does so in perhaps the most formal and solemn way in all of Scripture. What he does is he raises his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swears by the one who lives forever. Now, I want to ask you, when was the last time you saw someone swear with two hands? Anybody watched Perry Mason or Matlock? When someone takes the stand, what do they do? They either put the hand on the Bible or they do this, right? This is how we swear. Nobody swears like this. As a matter of fact, this is the only place in the Bible where someone swears like this. The other two places that are similar in the book of Deuteronomy... There's a one, it's specific that it's one hand, so it is the most solemn way. And he swears in perhaps the most solemn oath that one can. He swears by the one who lives forever. And we know that that is the Lord God himself. Even as Nebuchadnezzar manifested in Daniel chapter 4, when he swore by the Lord who lives forever. And you see... He goes right past all of the euphemisms that the Jews would use. He doesn't swear by the temple or by the gold in the temple. He doesn't swear on his mother's life. Some people do that even when their mother's still alive or when she's passed away. It doesn't matter. They use flippant language, but not here. He swears by the one who lives forever and he lifts up his hands to tell us that this is a very solemn thing. And that is not what we expect, because we expect if he's swearing with both hands to God, he's going to tell us it is going to be in the year, we, we heard this this morning, December 12, 2012. It's going to be, and we know it's going to be at 12-12 or something like that. We know down to the minute. And you see, this shows us the foolishness of date setting and time keeping. But we're drawn to that. There is a man... There is a man who is a heretic who used to be known as a reformed minister, preacher on the radio, who has not once, not twice, but is on his third time picking the day and the month and the year of the Lord's return. If he were doing this in Moses' day, they would stone him. And you see, that's our desire. And then if we miss it, we say, oh, that's okay, we'll pick another date. But God isn't looking to us to focus upon dates Because you see, Daniel responds and he says in verse 8, I don't understand what you're saying. 
Now, that shouldn't surprise us because do you understand what he's saying? I don't. It's mysterious. It's vague. And you see, the important point here we see in verse 9, in terms of the patience, it is not important to understand the details. Do you see how the answer is given? It's not, oh, Daniel, let me explain it to you in greater detail. Let me draw you a picture. Let me do for you the visions that you've seen before. No, he says, go your way, Daniel. Don't sit there and think about what you might need to think about. Get going and live life. That's why I'm telling you what I'm telling you. I'm not telling you for speculation. I'm not telling you so that you will just know. I'm telling you so your life will be active and changed, even in your 80s. Are you afraid of that today because you're not in your prime, you're not in your 20s, you're not in your 30s, you're not in your 40s? You wonder, well, I just, I guess I am who I am. If I I don't memorize the Bible, I'll never be able to memorize the Bible. If I don't have... Uh, the ability to minister to people in a certain way, I'll never have it. No, Daniel's in his 80s and he's getting marching orders. Go and do, it said. Because the Lord knows and understands. And we've been reminded of this throughout this entire book, haven't we? God knows all the empires. He knows all the rulers. He knows which king will succeed which. He knows everything and it's a part of his plan. But that's not for Daniel. That's not for you. And that's hard, isn't it? Because then we must give up control. We must trust God. You know, we talked about this a few weeks back, but if we were given insight into our election, we would not trust God as we're supposed to. We would stand on our election. But because election comes through God, and we must embrace Jesus Christ by faith, we must trust the Lord in that. That by holding on to Jesus, God has prepared everything from beginning to end. You see, that is the call to you today. It's not to speculate about how your life might be better if you embrace Jesus Christ. It's not to speculate about how the universe is put together, the command that is given to you today is to go your way. And if your way is not the way of Jesus Christ, you must go that way. You must embrace Him by faith. You must put aside all other questions first. And then once you have embraced the Lord, you must go in the path of obedience because that is where knowledge is found. That is where wisdom is gained as we follow the precepts of the Lord. We are never called to speculate. We are called to obey and to learn and to do. That's what it means to be patient. But God also calls us here to be wise. And part of wisdom is a kind of wisdom that we don't like to think about. It's first understanding God's judgment. Look with me again at verse 7. How long will it be till the end of these wonders? It is a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. You see, this time and times and half a time is three and a half if we're adding up. 
And it is a period of judgment. We see this throughout Daniel. We see it especially in the judgment that came on Nebuchadnezzar. You remember when he went out as a, as a beast? He was sent out for how many cycles? How many periods? Seven. It was the complete number of judgment. And so here, the judgment is before us. There is a chastening judgment that comes onto the people of God as they are refined. We'll look at that in a moment. We need to be reminded that God does not wink at sin. God's job is not just simply crushing your enemies. His job is not just punishing other people and letting you do whatever it is you want to do. No, God is your king, Christian. And He will refine you. And He will prune you. And that is a painful process. Isn't it? Any of you that have ever worked with trees know this example so well. The only way you can get a tree to stay healthy is to prune it. You have to clip certain limbs. You have to smooth out certain edges. And that's a painful process. But at the same time, we're reminded that this time of judgment, this time of chastisement, is cut short by the mercy of God. It's not seven times. It's not the full measure of judgment. It is cut short by the mercy of God. Three and a half times. And we need to remember this no matter how dark the trial is in front of us. Many of you have heard the phrase, perhaps you even use it when someone walks up to you and says that typical greeting, how are you doing? And you use that really famous Dave Ramseyism. Better than I deserve. But have you thought about what that means? Have you thought about that that means that if you are struggling, it's better than you deserve? That if you have trouble praying, if you have trouble communing with God, that you deserve to be separated from Him for eternity. Do you realize that if you struggle with illness and pain, that it's better than you deserve? You deserve to be tortured forever in hell, where the worm does not die and the flame is not quenched. Do you realize that right this moment, not some of you, as all of us are dying, it is better than we deserve. Because God gives us life, and He, by His grace, and by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, spares us from eternal death. You see, this is what allows us to be wise and to understand God's judgment. And as we think about what follows from here, this gives us great encouragement in the midst of judgment, because the contrast between those who are gods and those who are wicked is so sharp. Look at what is said here in verse 10. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. You see, this wisdom, this enlightenment that we get from the Scriptures is a change not just in what we think, It's a change in who we are. 
It's a change in what we do. And that is the work of the Spirit in our midst. And that kind of change is an eternal change. That kind of wisdom is not something like when you memorize a whole bunch of facts and they escape you. I imagine that we have some people in our midst who have competed in spelling bees or on game shows, and you don't remember all of the answers that you had when you did that. It escapes your mind. But not this kind of wisdom. This kind of wisdom changes who you are. It remains for all eternity. And that's why in Revelation 22.11 it can be said, Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. You see, if you have not embraced the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, if you still kick against God's sovereignty, if you still do not want to understand, you will remain wicked. You can try and clean up your act, but it won't help. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, even as you struggle along in life, that change will never go away. God has eternally changed you to make you wise, wise to the way of life. Understanding the way judgment works and how it works especially in different categories. The second thing that we'd like to see from wisdom is the need to understand God's purpose. You see, we may not know when the trial will end. Is the time and the two times and the half a time, is that years? Is that weeks of years? Is that decades? What is that? We don't know when the trial will end. This is like some of us have had a world that never seems to end. We get better and then it gets worse again. When will this ever end? But you see, the Lord knows the end of the trial. He knows it so specifically that He gives us a specific number of days. And that tells us that no trial is unnecessary. God knows exactly how long it is. And He has a purpose for it. Now, no one likes to go through painful things. But sometimes we realize that we have to. It's like this kind of experience. You take your child into a doctor. They've fallen out of a tree or they've fallen off a bicycle. And they have a bone that is broken and it's not set. The loving parent does not say to the doctor, Oh, I don't want you to put Johnny in any pain. Please just... Just give him some drugs, and we'll take him home, and we'll leave the bone as is. That kind of a loving parent cripples their child for life, right? The loving parent says, I don't want to see it, but I have to. I don't want this to happen, but you've got to set the bone. And the child's going to scream, and it's going to be painful, but it's what needs to be done so that Health can flow. This is how God uses trials in our lives. But it's not just the setting of a bad bone. It is to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he says in the midst of all this, in verse 10, that those who are under these trials will be purified, will be made white, will be refined. God will use these trials to refine His people. 
And what a blessing that is as we step back and think about it. And only God can do this. We see this in the first question that sets all of this up in verse 6. The angel asks, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And that word there for wonders is a very specific kind of word. It is an action that can only be done by God's power. It's what we see in the book of Exodus, the Song of Moses, chapter 15. Who is like you, O God, doing wonders? It's the same word that describes our Lord Jesus. What kind of a counselor is Jesus? He's a wonderful counselor, isn't he? Isaiah, chapter 9. He is a counselor who does wonders, who has power to heal, to save, and to encourage. This is the work of God in our midst. Finally, we are called to be patient. We're called to be wise. But we are also called to be faithful. You see, the Christian life is a life of action. It is not, as one ancient monk did, sitting on top of a large pole meditating for years. People passing up baskets of fruit. It's not about hiding away in a tower somewhere. The Christian life is to be lived in community, and it is to be lived by action. Now, how does this fit into Daniel and the apocalypse and kingdoms and nations and the future and abominations of desolation and all of this, all of this toward the end. Well, it fits in this way. The prime way that we must be faithful is by living in light of the end. The true purpose of biblical eschatology is not to order up the events and figure out whether the pre-mill or the ah-mill or the post-mills got it most in order. The prime point of biblical eschatology is to see and know the end and to have your life changed now by it. To live a life with the end in sight, in light of the end. And so the command that is given to Daniel is not to study more. It is not to unravel the mystery. No, Daniel's told just the opposite. This is sealed up. It is safe. You don't need to poke into it. You need to go, Daniel. You need to press on. And he's told this not once, but twice. To go his way and to live the life that God has given to him. Daniel must press on because there is still suffering to come. What he has experienced in the past, friends being tossed into a fiery furnace, being thrown into a lion's den, what he is experiencing right now, remember he is pouring out his soul to God because God's people are abandoning building the temple. God says this is the norm. There is suffering to come. And he reminds him by saying that the burnt offering will be taken away, that the abomination will take place. And there is a need for Daniel and for us to persevere. He does this in a very effective way. 
This is often the way that moms get children to persevere through things. Do you notice what he does? He says, there will be 1,290 days. And you need to persevere for 1,335 days. You see how he just extends that out a little bit? You see, the time is determined. It is precise. Only God knows it. But we must be prepared when we have endured all that we think we can endure to endure more for Jesus' sake. When we think we cannot press on anymore, we must press on more. We cannot give up at the end. We must press on in light of the end. Watched some this week of these Nordic combined cross-country skiing events. And you see these guys go miles and miles and miles on skis. And they go up a hill and they go up another hill and they go up another hill and another hill. And when they get to the last hill, what do they do? Do they sit down because they're tired? They go faster than they went before because they see the finish line. And they go up the hill harder. And they want to finish strong. That is the Christian life. We see the end. We see God coming in His sovereignty. We see the Lord returning. And we are pushed on beyond where we thought we could. In a real way, this is being like Jesus, isn't it? Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the shame of the cross. That's what we are called to do. If Jesus can do that, by His Spirit, you can. That's what we are called to be. To be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that we must live in a certain way. We must live knowing that God has a purpose, but we do not have all of the knowledge. And we must live now for God's glory. Peter puts it excellently in his second epistle. He says this in chapter 3, verse 11. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, when all of the heavens pass away and the heavenly bodies are burned up and dissolved and all is exposed, what does that mean? Since these things are to happen, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening on the coming of the day of God. You see, knowing the end is there pushes us on to holiness. And we look toward that end for our meaning. We're not caught up in just the here and the now. Because when does this end come? In verse 7, we see something that we really don't expect. The end comes when there is a shattering of the power of the holy people. We expect to see... The end comes when there's a shattering of the power of the Antichrist, right? That's how all the good movies end, right? The bad guy gets his comeuppance. The end will come when God's people are shattered and at the end of their rope. You think about that? When the church is at its absolute weakest, the end comes. When the church cannot go on anymore, when the church says to itself, when you say to yourself, I don't even know if I'm ready for him to come. He, he won't come for me. Look at all I've done. Look at the sin in my life. Look at the faithlessness I have. 
Look at how much we let him down. Look at all the people we didn't tell about Jesus. Look at all the people we didn't strengthen in faith. And it's at that moment when the church feels weakest that it needs its Savior that Jesus Christ comes. He comes as the triumphant one. He comes as the victor. He doesn't come to receive what the church has won for him. He is the one mighty in battle. And that's the reminder we get from all of this book. God is completely in control. We saw that in Daniel 2 with the story of the empires and that statue. We saw it in Daniel 7 in the picture of how the beasts are put in their place by the one who is the ancient of days. We see that God's not only in control, but His judgment is true. We saw that in the way He judged Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar in Daniel 4 and 5. And we see it in the way that God delivers His people from food, from fire, from lions. This is not just the Savior of Daniel. It is your Savior, Christian. He delivers. Because we will be different then, we must be different now. And Daniel rests assured in the promise of the last verse. He goes his way until the end, and then he shall rest, but he shall also stand in his allotted place. Some of your translations might say, in his inheritance. The concept is both. His place is secure and his inheritance is secure in Christ. There will not always be struggle and strife, Christian. There will not always be the need to endure, to persevere. Your rest in Christ is secure. Your inheritance in Christ is secure. And it is secure at the end of days. Forever. 